Dr. Edgar is the Distinguished Professor of New Testament Literature and Exegesis at Capital Bible Seminary. He has been there since 1970. His wife's name is Irene. She's not with us today. They have one son, Tom. Uh, he and his wife and two children live in Florida. He's a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and is a former Marine. He received both his uh, Master's of Theology and Doctorate of Theology degrees from Dallas Theological Seminary, and I believe at one time even took uh, courses at Washington Bible College. Uh, he's been a pastor, professor, and author, and continues to fill pulpits on various occasions. Uh, my connection with Dr. Edgar goes back quite a ways, but it became much closer uh, when I enrolled at Capital Bible Seminary and became even closer uh, than that when he was my grader and uh, advisor for my master's thesis. So he and I had quite a bit of contact uh, with one another for, I think it was a semester or two, I rode with him over to the Northern Virginia campus on Tuesday or Thursday evenings, I can't remember. But we would ride from Lanham, Maryland over to Northern Virginia to McLean Bible Church where uh, he taught a class for the seminary, and I took that class there. I was foolishly thinking I need to get as many courses as I possibly can in uh, as soon as they're offered, which isn't always the best thing to do when you're studying. Um, but I rode over with him, and, and we got to spend uh, time together that normally a student wouldn't get to spend with their professor. Uh, we even got stuck on the Beltway during the, the uh, Beltway Sniper uh, crisis, so uh, if you remember that, we were we were stuck on the Beltway for, I think, a couple hours uh, one evening on our way back, um, and so we have uh, spent uh, some time together, and uh, two ways that Dr. Edgar has impacted me is his unwavering commitment with uh, sticking with the text uh, in class as we had opportunity to interact, uh, if you uh, had the courage to pipe up and say something, and uh, you might get a response, well, is that what the text says? Is that what the Bible says? And, and uh, of course, generally, when you get that type of response, it's, uh, well, let me rethink that because the Bible probably isn't saying that. <laughs> but uh, his commitment to uh, sticking with the text to the words of the Bible has impacted me greatly, and also the fact that uh, God has given the believer everything that we need. He has uh, provided everything for us. And uh, so just two ways he has impacted my life. And uh, let me talk to you a little bit about our topic today. Uh, we are going to be talking about Pauline eschatology. And you might wonder, why in the world would you pick Pauline eschatology as the topic for uh, this type of meeting? Well... Uh, it, it's because that's what I wanted. Uh, and and uh, Van, Pastor Van, uh, he said, yeah, that sounds good. So, I mean, one and two together, the Lord's there, right? So uh, uh, that's why we uh, stuck with this topic. Plus, it was something that I knew uh, that uh, Dr. Edgar had uh, given this lecture. This is 2011, so 10 years ago as I heard him give faculty lectures at seminary on this topic, and I thought that would be a great idea. He wouldn't have to do too much uh, preparation work, and uh, so we'll do Pauline eschatology. Eschatology often has been looked at as a, I guess I would call it a second-level doctrine, where it's not as important as some of the other doctrines in the Bible, and it's things that we don't have to agree on, you know, that eschatology stuff, end time stuff is so confusing, and there's so many positions on it and opinions, well, it's better not to focus on that. And so the whole issue of eschatology has not received a lot of the treatment it deserves and a lot of the focus it deserves from Christians, particularly Pauline eschatology, the eschatology of Paul. We're all familiar with the book of Revelation. John's the, the apostle John is the author of that. But how many of us are familiar with what Paul says about uh, the end times, about the millennium, about the rapture? 
And uh, so this is an area that uh, needs attention, and Dr. Edgar has uh, given it uh, some attention. And so we can be thankful and appreciative to the Lord for allowing us to have Dr. Edgar in the way that he has uh, used Dr. Edgar. So uh, with no further comments, uh, Dr. Edgar, uh, the class, I guess we can call this a class, uh, the class is yours. (laughs) I was glad when I got up here to see that that copy without a cover on it wasn't my notes. (laughs) Well, it's good to be here in in the last several weeks. I've been to installations of pastors. It came all at once in uh, ordination of a couple more and retirement of another one. And I looked and uh, not only did I realize some of my students are retiring, that's why I'm feeling older these days. Uh, but it, it's really a wonderful thing because the buildings aren't what we're all about. And the same with the church. It's not the building, but it's the people. And it really is a blessing when you look and see people going on in the Lord. And uh, I'm thankful Dan's going on in the Lord. When I saw all those... People, we went to Chinese Bible Church. I, I shouldn't take this much time, but the whole ordination committee had gone to the seminary over the years. The two men being ordained and one being installed, they'd all gone to the seminary. They introduced several others, and then they had a translator. And when I got up there, I said, the translator also went to the seminary. So, uh, and that's just a blessing in these last few days particularly. Eschatology, I don't know, I didn't know what that meant, but I didn't know much of anything um, before I got saved. <laughs> and uh, that Greek word eschatos, or last thing, so we just say prophecy. And some years back, Dr. Heater, who was the uh, president, said, why don't you do a paper sometime on the eschatology of Romans? Well, I don't know, I never really thought about it. And then I went through that and I thought, now that I've started doing this, I realize this is one of the main books on eschatology, especially putting it all together, but you don't hear much about that. And so I, just like here in the notes, Paul's recognized as the premier church theologian, I think, we almost sometimes forget that Paul isn't uh, two natures himself. He, he gets uh, exalted because he's written so much and most of our theology is what we would call Pauline theology. But he has a lot to say about this particular subject. Down on the introductory part, I won't spend too much time on that, but the... Uh, and if anybody has a question, they can, we can bring it up and handle it later. But everybody isn't clear, but I would think we'd all be clear in this room that everybody now doesn't make any difference whether they're Jew or Gentile. All have to be saved the same way through faith in Jesus Christ. And everybody doesn't believe that even in the evangelical circles. Some of them think that, that the Jews can still get saved in the Old Testament way. What where they're slipping up is they couldn't get saved that way in the Old Testament either. They had to get saved by faith. And uh, now we're all on the same ground in the same body when we're saved, same destiny. There's no distinction without turning there. Galatians 3.28 says there's neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, and so on. Talking about in the body of Christ. But when we get into this subject of eschatology, and we've already heard, people have different views on that. But even worse than that, probably most of the professing church, and that means if they claim to be a Christian, 
like the denominations, for instance, that I grew up in where I never even heard the gospel as far as I know. So it can cover a lot of ground. But most of the professing church are what we call amillennialists. That's just like, uh, ah in Greek is like non. They're non-millennialists. They don't believe that there's going to be any kingdom. They don't believe that Israel has any future as far as the land promises or uh, David, Davidic promises, we might say, the kingdom. So they're not in effect. We're, well, our school, I'm, this church, uh, I would imagine most of us are what we call premillennial. That is, we believe that the kingdom promised to Israel is still in the future, and the church now is pre that time. It's still ahead of us. Uh, there are different views on that, but uh, a lot of people don't like that idea. And they say things like, those are just material. I don't really use the term carnal, but that, that promise given to Israel is are those promises. That's just talking about land and all these uh, physical things. They're not really spiritual like we have now in the church, so that's insignificant. And therefore, it's no big thing if they're gone. Uh, one of the proofs that's used, and I have it listed right there, is Matthew 21.43. That's outside of Paul, eschatology. But... In Matthew 21, 43, Jesus finished talking to the scribes and Pharisees, and he said, Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. I listened. One of my professors, when I was in seminary, and everybody had to be premillennial, dispensational, pre-tribulation, and so on, but after uh, I left there, the theology professor went to some meeting, he came back and said, so-and-so's going on mill. And yes, he went on mill. And he doesn't believe in those things anymore. He, he said there's just one people of God, which is a common discussion. And so now he's in that amillennial camp. And I heard this disc, he's very strong on that, that this verse right here is enough to show that there's no longer any kingdom promised to Israel. Well, I just thought I'd spend a couple of minutes uh, covering that to try and make sure that we aren't hung up on something like that before we get into some of these statements that Paul makes. First thing, if we look in this passage, and once again, we don't have to go through all of it, but it's obvious that Israel's problem and the reason why the kingdom of God's taken from them is because they're rejecting Jesus Christ. What we would call, and Paul's going to call later on, disbelief. And because of that, Jesus says in verse, uh, after he gives this parable, in verse 42, he says, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner or the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And then they realized he was talking about them. Well, I would think, first of all, you'd have a logical question, and that is if he can take it from Israel and give it to somebody else, in this case they're saying the church, there's no reason why sometimes he can't take it from a church and give it to Israel. So the issue isn't whether he took it, but whether it's gone permanently, and they're just assuming that. Well, the disciples didn't seem to take it that way. That would have been a major thing in the Gospels if they thought the kingdom was taken. It's interesting to me, I put down in the next point, they're sometimes described as relatively insignificant, but if you read some of the statements that are made, and you read uh, for instance, the Magnificat where Mary in Luke uh, is making this statement when she finds out that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah and 
if you look at that, you'll see at least half of those statements that she says, Lord, blessed, I'm going to be blessed and all this. And you sent a Savior to deliver us from our enemies. And you read these statements and Simeon and Anna and so on, and a lot of those statements are oriented more towards physical deliverance of Israel than we would think. I never thought about it too much until I started thinking about it in conjunction with some of these things. So for Israel at that time, that was a big factor. We don't know what that's like because we don't have any promise that we're going to, one day, the United States is going to be the prominent place in the, sometime in the future and it, it's never going to completely die off and finally it'll be for a thousand years the central place in the whole world and all that. So we don't know what that kind of a promise is like. But it's very significant to them. And I think we can't just say that's insignificant because it's not spiritual. It's talking about land and talking about physical king and all that kind of thing. If we look in Acts 1, just to give you a little idea... In Acts chapter 1, Luke is writing there and he talks about all that Jesus began both to do and to teach in verse 1. And he says in verse 3 to, to the disciples to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, after his death on the cross by many infallible proofs, being seen of them for 40 days and speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So for 40 days after the cross, he's talking to them about this kingdom of God, which the, these amillennialists are saying was taken away from Israel. And I thought, why is he spending 40 days with these disciples if that's gone? In addition, notice as we go down through here, he tells them to wait for the promise of the Father. and In verse 5, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit and so on. But in verse 6, this was after 40 days talking about this. Now, they might have been slow. And I'm slow. But after 40 days talking about this, they said, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They're expecting it. You say, well, most of the time he's talking about the church. As far as I can tell, he didn't say much of anything about the church. They didn't know there was going to be a church. They didn't even know Gentiles are going to get saved. It took over 15 years to work that one out. So what was he telling them? 40 days he wasn't telling them about the church, obviously. He's talking about the kingdom of God and things pertaining to Israel, I think. Whatever, they still expected that. Are you going to restore the kingdom? And, and he said, can't you people learn anything? You're not going to be any kingdom. No, he didn't say that. He said, the times and the seasons, we don't know about that. It, which is a funny answer. He says in verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father's put in his own power, but you'll receive the Holy Spirit and so on. Why would he answer that way if, if their whole statement's wrong? Why doesn't he just say, forget that. We're getting on to more spiritual things. We're not going to get in this carnal thing of a kingdom for Israel. But he didn't say that. And then without going through the whole passage in Acts chapter 3, there's a section in verse 11 through 26. But Peter is speaking to the people after performed a miracle. And in verse 19, he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, or it could be convert, turn, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. This time of refreshing. And he will send Jesus who was preached to you, whom the heaven must receive until a times of restitution of everything. Now notice what he says which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said in the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you, you'll 
hear him and so on. And then we come over here to verse 24. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after. We could say Samuel and then right on in order, one after the other is what that word means. They have likewise foretold or prophesied about these days. So it looks to me like he's saying these things that are prophesied are still good. They haven't just been taken away and, and disappeared in the smoke or something. Well, when we come down to the next part, and I say God's plan for Israel, the basic thing to, to keep in mind there, and what I'm really driving at here, is that Israel still has this future. The first, the first point, in other words, that I want, want to work on here is that we have biblical evidence that those promises are still good in Paul. Basically, it's because God's faithful. First point, won't spend much time on that either, but salvation is now individual, it's spiritual, and it's primarily to the Gentiles. And we'll see as we look at some of these passages, Israel's just a remnant. Most of the nations lost. And that's the situation where we are now. So what we've come up to, and I'm going to pick up at Romans chapter 3, but what we've come up to to that point is the fact that the individual Jew doesn't have any advantage as far as salvation goes over the Gentile. I mean, that's going back to that basic point we started right off with, that everybody's the same now. So Paul has just spent time in Romans chapter 1, chapter 2 particularly, showing that the Jew doesn't have any advantage over the Gentile. The very fact that he has the Mosaic law doesn't give him any advantage. Just having it, as he points out in there, just having the law isn't doing you any good. It's whether you're paying attention to it or not that counts. But even that doesn't count for salvation now. And after spending particularly chapter 2 in Romans on that, and getting this point across very clearly, in fact, he says in uh, verses chapter 2, verses 12 and following, especially verse 14, whenever a Gentile... And he says twice, who does not have the law. He makes it very clear. Gentiles don't have the law. Whenever a Gentile who does not have the law does the things of the law by nature, it counts just as much as you who have the law if you do it according to the law. And the reverse is true. If you don't do it, just the fact that you possess a Mosaic law doesn't count. It's, in other words, it's whether you do it or not. Well, when he finished that, we come to chapter 3, and the Apostle Paul asks this question. He asks these questions quite a bit in his epistles, and particularly in Romans. We're not going to cover all these, just certain ones, but he, uh, for instance, he has what, these are what we call rhetorical questions. He knows the answer, you know. Uh, are we going to have lunch? <laughs> You know, to, today, you, we already know the answer. You know, now you might be asking somebody, are we going to have lunch? And you don't know the answer. But I, I could state that and then give some reasons why, a rhetorical question. After what he said, if I was a Jew or even a Gentile familiar with the Old Testament, I would say, what's all this old stuff in the Old Oh, not old stuff. What's all this stuff in the Old Testament? If I look at the Bible, most of it's the Old Testament. Have all these promises there concerning Israel. 
And you've just said there isn't any difference between Jew and Gentile. But he's talking about, uh, we, we would call it salvation, but now the terminology that's floating around in the commentaries is individual eternal salvation. And I thought, well, that takes care of it pretty well. It's individual and it's eternal salvation that he has been talking about where there's no difference. So then the question comes up. What then is the advantage for the Jew? Now, I'm not, never have been much in languages, but I don't have to speak it and I don't have to hear it. And some of these books, I've, I forget who I was talking to, figured you've been through them maybe 80 times, 70 maybe in class. Uh, but I'm, I'm reading every now and then, or most of the time, because I'm more comfortable with the Greek, but that's just because I want to translate it, and I don't know what translation you have, and I'm going to try to at least translate it honestly. <laughs> okay, so, and hopefully it's going to come out what you have there in the English. What then's the advantage for the Jew... Or what is the profit for the circumcision? You know what I would think? Until I read Romans. <laughs> until I read the rest of this verse, I'd think that Paul would say, I, j I just finished saying there isn't any. And an amillennialist would have to say, there really isn't any. Now what they've done, some of them, is say that the covenant still holds, the physical promises, forget them, but one of these days... God's going to just save Israel, but He's just going to save them in mass, sort of, uh, and then they're all going to be swallowed up and become part of the church. So Israel isn't going to really have any future as Israel, according to that. But they think, now we've taken care of the Old Testament promises because someday the whole nation is going to get saved. They don't say how it's going to happen. I guess he's just going to zap them all with the gospel. I'm, I'm not sure uh, because they don't go into that. But notice what he says. Much in every way. First, and I would take this probably mainly, and this is the only one he gives, because they were entrusted with the oracles of God. I would translate that more likely they had the sayings of God committed to them. Now, part of the key here is that this word is not the word that's used for word. So he's not saying they're trusted with the word of God, although this would, this would be God's word. This isn't the word for Scripture, and Paul says this is the main reason why they have an advantage. I don't want to get off my notes here since we went to all the trouble to make them up. Uh, but notice a couple of things here, and I tried to point out on page two. The issue here is not concerning the church. It's not concerning saved people now. It's concerning one group, Israel. The Jews, the circumcision, ethnic group. What advantage do they have? So we're not talking about something that applies to the Jew. I mean, sorry, to the Gentiles, and it doesn't apply to the church. This is an advantage that's strictly for the Jews, the circumcision. And he's already said they don't have any as far as salvation goes. So that almost automatically puts it into a national or some other uh, kind of advantage that they have that would be from the Old Testament. Now, this word logia, as I said, just means the sayings of God. So need to interpret that. What's he talking about? The view I always heard was that it's like the custodian of the Scriptures. Their advantage is that they have the scriptures and they're sort of in charge of them. Then one day I 
started thinking about this and thought there's more to that. I think uh, premillennialists, us, we've missed a lot that he's talking about here. Some people have said it's the Mosaic Law, but he's just spent chapter 2 saying having the Mosaic Law isn't any advantage as far as getting saved. Some have said it's the gospel, but the gospel goes out to Gentiles just as well as Jews, so that's not an advantage just for the Jews. Some say it's the salvation available now, but that has the same uh, flaws in it. The covenantal relationship, that's the one that says just being having some special relationship to God, maybe one of these days eventually... Uh, getting saved and becoming swallowed. They don't say this, but I would say swallowed up in the church. Uh, that doesn't seem to fit. Uh, the possession or caretaker of the Scriptures. That's a possibility, but I, I was amazed when I read uh, these amillennial theologians, people that don't hold our position, that say these are the Messianic promises. And I thought, how can they say that? Well, because they generalize them and then take out all those carnal material things like the land and a thousand years. In other words, they take out all the special things. But when I look down at this and I start thinking about it, I realize, one, that that's not the normal word for Scripture. It's not the normal word for word. It's on the same stem. But it's the sayings. And that they're probably right in that. How am I going to uh, determine this? I have to look at it in the context. And I tried to uh, put that down there in the notes under C, uh, the meaning of the term in this context. And we'll see, we'll look at it now, but the possession of the scriptures, just being caretaker of them or custodian, isn't basically what he's talking about here. Notice what he says in verse 3. Begins with four. So this is an argument for what he's saying. For what if some disbelieved? He doesn't say what if they are disbelieving, what if they did? So I think he's referring back to something that's already happened. As a strong term, disbelieved, it would fit with the cross, I think. They rejected their Messiah. Their unbelief won't nullify God's faithfulness, will it? And in the Greek, it, it's, you don't just guess. The answer is built into the way the sentence is. No. See, we don't, we don't have to try and pick up uh, intonation or body language or anything like that because it's, it's built in there. So he's saying, in effect, that Israel's unbelief is not going to nullify God's faithfulness. And so the issue here is God's faithfulness. In other words, is he going to do what he said or not? And he continues, no, very strong in verse 4, let God be true and every man a liar. God's going to be true and stay with his word even if every human being is a liar. And he says, just like it's written, Psalm 51, in order that you be justified in your words and you overcome when you're judged. What's he saying there? He's saying that God is going to do what he said. So if I look at this scripture, I can, I can start figuring this out. God's faithfulness isn't going to change something that's already happened. So we can't be talking about historical portions. God's faithfulness to keep his promises isn't going to change some of the other statements in the Psalms and all that. There's only one thing that still depends on God keeping His Word, and that's what's coming in the future. Promises to Israel. Now, I don't think they're worried about judgment. <laughs> they're worried that He might not be faithful to that. So He's talking about an advantage that's just for Israel... And it depends on God doing what he said and not being a liar. 
Well, I didn't realize that that's what this was saying for a while, but it always seemed to me. How can you say that God is not going to do what he said in the Old Testament without claiming that God isn't doing what he said? That, that he's lying. And that's what Paul's saying here. God isn't a liar, so he is going to do what he said. Now, notice what he said here in verse 3. What if some disbelieved? Their disbelief won't nullify God's faithfulness, will it? That's exactly what the amillennialists or the majority of the professing church is saying. Because Israel disbelieved, they didn't accept the Messiah, God's not going to keep His promises to him. So that's a realistic thing. That's what seems logical to most people. That what Israel did, that's gone. They've lost their privilege. But Paul says, no, that's still around because God is going to do what He said. So the, the real thing when He says much in every way, because they had these promises committed to them. And God is going to keep His word. So I can count on that. You know, we start thinking about that and you realize if God's going to take all these promises away from Israel because they disbelieved, what's He going to do maybe to us if we get in trouble? You know, I believe once saved, always saved, what to call eternal security. But I'm counting on the fact that God said that I'm going to stay saved. And I'm not counting on how I'm going to do because if I can lose it, if I'm not doing right, then I'm on some shaky ground. Uh, I'm on worse than shaky ground if it depends on me. And I think God's going to do what He said. He's going to keep His promises to Israel. That's what Paul says here. And therefore, that is a big advantage. They don't have any advantage regarding salvation but they have this big advantage in that those Old Testament prophecies are going to be fulfilled. And I think that's what this verse says. And as I've said, I've never seen anybody using this anywhere. I thought when I pointed this out in a paper, what we call Evangelical Theological Society, everybody would say, boy, that's great. And we'd get together like... Pastor Van talking about you get together and talk this over, but it just, you know, we might as well have just been downtown <laughs> talking on the street corner as far as a reaction. Nobody seemed to, to care. And I thought, here, here's a verse that says, that if I could put it this way, all millennialism's wrong. <laughs> See, it's about as clear and straight as you can get. And, God, and Paul probably would have used amillennialism, but the word wasn't around yet. <laughs> so. so the whole thing depends on God's faithfulness to his word. And I said there in verse 5, just summing up, God's true even if every man is a liar. This next part we don't need to go into in verse 5 or, uh, because it doesn't really bear on that particular issue. Somebody has some objections to that and so on. I'll, I'll just spend a minute. This objector says, if our unrighteousness, and he's coming at it from a Jewish perspective in 3.5, uh, demonstrates God's righteousness, what are we going to say? Isn't God righteous who punishes us? Uh, our disbelief gives God a chance to show that He keeps His word and that He's faithful. So God's getting benefit out of it. How can He hold that against us? Of course, the fact is, that's not why they disbelieve. They didn't say, let's see if we can get some more glory to God here. Give Him a chance to uh, come down on us and show how righteous he is. Paul's basic answer is there, no, because otherwise how would God judge the world? If God can show he's righteous by judging it, then he wouldn't be able to 
judge anybody because he be getting advantage. He's going to get advantage out of everything he does and be glorified, and therefore there wouldn't be any judgment. Everybody'd be off in their sins and so on. He couldn't judge the world or anything if if that followed through. So that's just an objection to what Paul had said there. Well, we have more passages. <coughs> excuse me, in Romans itself on this issue of the fact that God's Old Testament word is still in effect. Not for salvation. Of course, I have to be careful how I say that. People never did get saved by the law in the Old Testament. It's just a way of life. But the promises to Israel are still in effect. Now we get over to Chapters 9 through 11, some people think that section, we could drop it out of there and we wouldn't lose anything. <laughs> Other people say that's the main focus of the whole book. Well, it's just like a lot of things in Bible interpretation. You have one view that's as far as you can get on one side and another view as far as you can get on the opposite side and then a whole lot in between. But this is, a, this is a big section, chapters 9 through 11. Paul says in 9, 1 through 5, I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, and so on. And then he talks about verse 3, my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So it's very clear He's talking about ethnic Israel here. Not talking about something, some kind of spiritual Israel or spiritual Jews. He's talking about ethnic or what we would call real Jews, real Israel, physical Israel, however we want to call it. And he, then he goes on to say, they're Israelites in verse 4. Whose is the adoption and the glory and the covenants? That's where the promises come in. The giving of the law, the service, and then here specifically in the promises. Why is he so upset and sorrowful? It's because Israel has all these things, but they, they're out of it. Spiritually, they're out of it. The gospel's going basically to Gentiles. And Israel at best is a remnant. And he's going to spend some time on that. So when he looks, here is his nation, his countrymen. They had all these promises, all these things to look forward to. But they're, they're not enjoying any of that. They haven't gotten those blessings. And so in verse 6, he makes a statement, but it's found, it, I think is so obvious that I realized a couple times I'm teaching this as if it was a question. It really isn't a question, but it's built on a question. Because in 9.6 Paul says, It's not such a thing that the word of God has fallen off. Commonly translated failed, and that's probably good. I just... It's actually fallen off or fallen out, and that gives me a good idea, like a ship falling off course or something like that, or derailed. That's not the situation. He's just enumerated these blessings that are for Israel, and he said the word of God hasn't fallen off course. For what? So what he's saying is that God's word and these promises, these low... Sorry, I started to use the Greek word. These uh, sayings that we talked about back there in chapter 3, these Old Testament promises, they haven't failed. We look at Israel, it looks like they failed. It's amazing to me, it's been 2,000 years and they're still roughly in the same shape that they were then. But he said, 
Word of God hasn't fallen off course or it hasn't failed. That's not what the problem is. Which takes care, we saw in chapter 3, Israel's disbelief it didn't derail God's sayings. He's going to be true to His Word. God's going to keep His Word because He's faithful. His Word hasn't failed, so if you have some other reason, you might think it would have gotten off course or failed. No, that's not what's taking place here. Well, if I'm an Israelite, I'm looking there and I'm thinking, what's going on? I can go back hundreds of years and these promises and I've grown up and we've had all this. We don't have them. Basically, Gentiles getting saved. Some Israelites. But we don't have those. But Paul says, no, they haven't failed. And then he brings up another point. Previous point was God's faithful, so he's going to do what he said and I can count on that. This one is, not all those of Israel are Israel. It's interesting here because if I said in a seminary class, all students are not scholars, or maybe I should say all scholars are not scholars, something like that, you wouldn't think I'm saying no because there are some people working down here in the sanitation department that I'm talking about that are scholars. In other words, I'm saying everybody in this group is not what they really should be. I'm not expanding that. But this is taken by the same people we've been uh, disagreeing with all along and turned around. What Paul says here is all Israel, that is all physical Israelites are not Israel in the sense that we're talking about here that they're going to, they've been intended as recipients of these promises. I would call it the Israel of God. And we'll go into that in a minute. All Israel is not real Israel in this sense. But this is taken by most people and the reason why they do it is there, I should have checked up because but I think there are 68 uses, something like that, of Israel in the New Testament. And there are only two possibilities. Where there are only two that uh, are so clear there's no way they can get around them. And this is one of them. Uh, and the other is in Galatians 6.16. So they, since they, got, they have this opportunity, they, they're going to twist it and say, this is talking about spiritual Israel, which is the church. That's just the opposite of what he's saying here. He's saying all ethnic Israel is not Israel. It doesn't say some other people are, some Gentiles are. And then he makes it even clearer, neither because they're Abraham's seed are all children. So he's saying all of Abraham's physical descendants aren't children in the sense that we're talking about, that God told Abraham, your seed's going to be called an Isaac. And then, out of Isaac's descendants, Jacob. So it's selective, it's narrowing down, it's focusing. Now, if he's talking about salvation, as a lot of people take it in this chapter, then we would say, Abraham's descendants, only those through Isaac's line can be saved. And of Isaac's descendants, only those through Jacob's line can be saved. But that's not what he's talking about. We have what we call election. You've probably heard that term just means to choose or select. But this is choosing uh, a line of Israel for what we call a line of promise, a line through whom the Messiah is going to come, the line through whom the blessings are going to come upon the rest of the earth, the line, the physical line of descendants that are going to receive all these promises. So we haven't, uh, we haven't opened this up and spread it out. Like I said, it's narrowed down. The expression itself means everybody in this group's not what they should be. 
uh, or, or not the real ones, if we could put it that way. And also the fact that he shows these examples. Now, no Jew's going to disagree with this. This is just simple uh, Sunday school. They all knew this, that he was selective. And so what Paul's saying, his basic answer here is that God always selected the line of promise that is the line that is going to receive these Old Testament promises. Now, without going into it, I think it's clear it's not just a random selection. God knows who's going to believe. But this isn't talking about selecting them to be saved. It's selecting them to be the line, physical line, for these promises and finally the recipients. And we know from other passages that nobody's going to get into that millennial kingdom except save people. When Christ comes, sets up the kingdom, and they come before Him, only the saved are going to get into that kingdom. Physical people still living on earth, but only the believers are going to get in there to start. So I would say that, that it wasn't any accident that God picked Jacob instead of Esau, uh, because He foreknows what the person's going to be like, but he, he didn't pick him for salvation, at least not what he's talking about here. He's picking him for this line of promise and descent. So that's where I have selection. And I should go on to point out in verses 10 through 12, he says not only that, but also Rebecca, out of one... Uh, we could say sexual act with Isaac our father for the not having been born or practice anything good or worthless or we could say evil in order that God's purpose according to election might stand they're selecting them for this line of descent and through whom the promises of Israel are coming but notice what he says not of works that's Israel's promise. Whole chapter 10 is going to be on that. The whole first eight chapters pretty much were on that issue. 9.30, the end of this chapter is going to be on the issue. Israel's problem is works. They don't want to come by faith. They're still hanging on to works. And he says they weren't selected on the basis of works. And so that's one, that's one of the big problems that Israel has. And that's where I said this selection or election is not based on works. The next point is for temporal destiny. In other words, it's a historical destiny in time in the line of promise and it's not for individual eternal salvation. If I had to make the choice, I'd say that Jacob was selected because he was saved, not in order to be saved. Not according to this chapter, that's what it's talking about. So Paul says, no, word of God hasn't failed. You just never understood it. It wasn't automatically for everybody that's physically born a Jew. You have to be in the line of promise. And that means also that you have to be a believer. So, till the nation believes as a whole the nation isn't going to get the national promises. Eventually, when the nation believes as a whole, then they'll get the national promises. But right now, it's uh, in between, and we'll look at that too. Well, he goes on, there are various objections. Isn't that unrighteous with God to pick some and to harden others because most of the nation Israel is hardened now and so on. And then down in verse 19, you'll say to me then, why does he still find fault? Because who's withstood his plan? I would translate that. And he points out God can do what he wants. As he says, out of the same batch of clay, the potter can make pots for different purposes. Same batch of clay that is Israel. God can have some pots for this purpose and some pots for that purpose. A lot of people are confused on verse 22 uh, and the following, but notice what he says here in answer to this objection. 
because the, what the person's objected to is he said, if God has hardened Israel, then isn't he the one to blame for this situation? Well, I think that's a logical question myself. But after saying God can select for whatever purpose he wants, he says in verse 22, and if God, and I'm going to, a couple of these things you have to interpret, I would say, not because he desires, if God, although he desires to display his wrath and make his power known, which he did with Pharaoh, but that was on earth. He didn't harden Pharaoh for salvation. He hardened Pharaoh so he'd be numb upstairs, uh, not let Israel go. But Pharaoh was already that way. He told Pharaoh, this is why I brought you up here. Not so I could force you to do this, but because I knew you're a cantankerous individual. I didn't, I'm paraphrasing that slightly. Um, I mean, otherwise, why did he care which one he brought up there? He could take who was ever up there and, and harden him to do what he wanted. And here we are with Israel, and the problem they're having is they're hardened. Doesn't that mean it's God's fault? And so he says, if God, although he desires to display his wrath and make his power known, and that's the same terminology a few verses earlier, it said this is what he did with Pharaoh. He bore with much long-suffering vessels of wrath prepared for perdition. The ones that he's bearing with were people who were headed for perdition. But that's not saying that he appointed that. What he's talking about here in the key, and nobody seems to pick up on it, is the verbs past tense. doesn't say he bears with them. He bore with them. What's he talking about? He bore with Israel for 1,400 years and put up with them. Stephen can say you've never been right with you. You're claiming you follow Moses. You've never even obeyed Moses. Of course, they stoned him to death. And they didn't like his sermon uh, too well. But he's talking about the time up until the cross. And it says God bore with him up till that time. But he's not bearing with them any longer. Because once they rejected his son, sacrificed him on the cross, then God has hardened them. And that's where they are now. But the hardening is not what caused them to be like they are and in disbelief and reject the Messiah, which is what this question is assuming. But the hardening is a consequence of all their unbelief over those years. And they're still hardened but any time they turn, 2 Corinthians, without turning to their chapter 3, says whenever they turn to the Spirit, then the veil's taken away. So when individually they can turn, but until they turn nationally, the nation's out of it there. They're hardened now, but it's a consequence of what they did, not God causing them to do what they did. Well, not trying to cover the, everything in these chapters here, let me point out uh, another passage that we have there. I have the promises were made to the fathers and are irrevocable, Romans eleven twenty eight and 29. This is after he said that one of these days all Israel is going to be saved, the Lord's coming and so on. Um, let me read 25. For I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, and he's wrapping up a big uh, argument here, and we're going to go back and look at some of this. I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of this mystery, that you be wise in yourselves, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles enters. Thus all Israel be saved. One of these days they're going to be saved. Just like it's written, the rescuer come out of Zion. He'll turn ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant 
when I'll take away their sins. So eventually that's going to happen to Israel. And that's where we get to this statement near, right near the end of this chapter, verse 28. On the one hand, according to the gospel, they're enemies for your sakes. Israel, as far as the gospel goes, and this is not talking about an individual's an enemy, but the nation. They're enemies. God's enemies. For your sakes. For your Gentiles' sakes. And then notice what he says. On the other hand, according to the election or, or the selection, they're beloved because of the fathers. Now, I don't know how that's worded. Uh, the King James, I don't think it's too clear. I'm not, I'm not finding any fault with the King James. I'm just saying the way it's translated, you could take it probably several ways, but that's because of the Father's plural. That's not because of God the Father with an apostrophe S. They're enemies as far as the Gospel goes for your sakes, you Gentiles. But as far as that election to a future historical destiny right here on earth, I, that's why I'm saying historical, temporal, because uh, that's where the, we're talking about. They're beloved because of the fathers, because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he's not going to go back on them not only does he keep his word, but he's not going to go back on those promises because way down the line some of their descendants disbelieve. He still made those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so as I pointed out there, Israel's an enemy nationally as far as the gospel. We could say as far as spiritual salvation, they're pretty much out of it, although Paul makes it clear in this chapter, individually they can be saved just like the Gentiles. But their beloved respecting election, that's this national choice, the line of promise, and what God has for them as far as a nation, this historical destiny. And notice what else he says. Because the gifts and the calling of God are without regret. God doesn't regret, go back on his promises. You know, it's probably not popular now. Uh, you're almost afraid to say anything, but I, I think this is, he's not an Indian giver. I think I said that one time, somebody looking at me, and I said, well, I'm, I'm not, I don't have anything against Indians. I'm just, that's just a term. I don't even know where it came from. Uh, but probably most of us are old enough that we've heard that term. And that's what he's saying here. God doesn't go back on on his promises. Then one verse, and, and I think we could go just a few minutes more, we'll, we'll finish up this one section. Actually, I'm not going in all the detail I planned because I, I didn't. I thought I have enough here to take care of a week, probably. <laughs> I have to be careful. Uh, in Romans 15, 7 and 8, this is interesting. I, I taught this for some years and then I read some commentaries. And that, sometimes that's a mistake. And I, I saw all these different things and I thought none of those are satisfying but I thought I'll try for a couple of years uh, laying these different views out. And then I thought I'm going back to the way I think it is. And it wasn't too long after that that some professor down at uh, Duke. Now, I grew up in a Methodist church and I never heard the gospel. So I was surprised. But he came up with the same thing I did, the same arguments, and I thought, I, I've, I've fallen down on the job because I kept saying I want to write that guy and tell him I really appreciate that because... He's using the same arguments, but he could probably be a better writer than I am. Whatever, he laid it out very clearly. You'll see all kinds of 
statements and translations, but I think this is pretty clear. Paul says, receive one another, and his whole point through this epistle here is both Jew and Gentile can get saved. The Gospels to the Jew first, then to the Greek. He says that more than one time when he says there isn't any difference in Romans 3.23. His basic thing he's saying there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. But the individuals within it either. And he says, wherefore receive one another. It's like accept one another. And in this epistle, by the nature of it, he probably means basically Jew and Gentile. But even if he doesn't, notice what he says. Just as also Christ received you to the glory of God. And then, for I say that Christ became a minister of the circumcision. He became a servant or a minister for the Jews. And then notice what he says. In behalf of the truth of God. That's why he came. In behalf of the truth of God and then a little bit more. In order to confirm the promises to the fathers. So that's one of the reasons he came. His first coming was to confirm the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So we've seen Romans chapter 3 that what's their advantage because they were entrusted, committed to them the sayings of God and God keeps His Word. And then we saw in chapter 9 God's Word hasn't fallen off course. He never did say He's going to save every single person just because they were physically born Jew. There's a selective process and only some are going to get saved, but the Word of God still holds as far as those promises. And then we saw chapter 11, 28 and 29. That, and I don't see how you can even put these verses together any other way. How can Israel be enemies because of the Gospel and beloved because of the election if the election is election to salvation like a lot of people think it? It has to be election for those national promises. So there's a third place just in Romans. And then this one says, Christ came to confirm the promises to the fathers when he came in his first advent. I think that's enough right there. Uh, just looking at Paul, but that ought to outweigh uh, some possible ways of taking Matthew 21:43, especially when the disciples didn't seem to take it the way a lot of people do. And we can... We can be confident that a premillennial viewpoint, that is that one of these days Israel is going to be nationally and physically in their kingdom on earth, that that is going to come to pass. If God's word means anything, it means that. Do I have any partiality to Israel? Not particularly. But God does, so I'm going along with it. <laughs> um, all right, I'll stop there. <laughs>